welcome to Real World Enterprise Architecture. My name is Reggie. I make my living as an enterprise architect for a multinational corporation. And in this podcast, I talk about enterprise architecture in the real world. The other day I listened to a podcast that talked about how the future of enterprise architecture would be event-driven. That an event-driven architecture is natural and inevitable. That when you really look at an enterprise, any enterprise in fact, it's all about events. Now, when I hear statements like that, it naturally makes me suspicious. It seems so clairvoyant and final and even a wee bit arrogant. It sounds a lot like we're saying, Hey folks, the automobile is coming so we can finally get rid of that pesky horse and buggy once and for all. Like we're saying an event-driven architecture is the thing that's going to fix all that's broken with architecture in the enterprise. If it were only that simple. You know, it's always convenient to find a scapegoat. That thing that's at the heart of all our pain, all our troubles, all our difficulties. The idea that there's a single structural reason for the brittleness and brokenness in our enterprise and that maybe there's a way to fix it once and for all. Well, that is a pretty enticing thought. Now, I can't remember the podcast and I really don't feel like hunting it down because that's not the point anyway. And in fact, I have nothing at all against event-driven architectures. I I actually like event-driven architectures. I think they're quite beautiful in their own way. Lots of people are talking about event-driven architectures that way, like they're the way of the future. Not just another option, but in fact the way of the future. There are dozens of articles, recent articles on event-driven architectures. I won't bore you with listing them off, but they do a pretty decent job of explaining event-driven architectures, the basics, the advantages, where they really shine. And I'll provide the links to a few of those that I like in the show notes. One of these articles, a Forrester article, the title of the article is Event-Driven Architecture, This Time It's Not a Fad, written by senior analyst David Mooter. In his article, Mooter admits that the event-driven paradigm is not new, that event-driven has been around for a very long time, more than 50 years in fact, but that recent advances in technology and architecture have elevated the value of events above and beyond what we've seen in the past. He says that these trends are making event-driven architecture an important pattern that will be with us for some time. And of course, there are dozens of YouTube videos on event-driven architectures, and I'll leave that to you to peruse those. And then there are two good books on event-driven architectures that have been written in the last year. First, there's uh, James Urquhart's book, Flow Architectures, which describes event-driven architectures in a lot of detail and explains how powerful they are in integrating the enterprise. Urquhart even makes the case for how event-driven architectures, which he refers to generally as flow architectures, are destined to become the architecture paradigm of the future. There's also Adam Belmare's book, Building Event-Driven Microservices, which is a little more technical and, in my opinion, a little more tangible. In his book, Belmare describes what I think is a very practical guide to implementing an event-driven architecture using microservices. These two books, Urquhart's book and Belmare's book, provide a good foundation for understanding and working with event-driven architectures. I'm sure there are other books too, but these two in particular provide a solid foundation for understanding event-driven architectures. Both of these books, Belmares and Urquhart's, assert that event-driven architectures are not just beneficial. 
but that event-driven architectures will become the dominant paradigm for the future. And I'd be lying if I said that this kind of talk doesn't concern me a bit. It does. Look, I'm not saying that an event-driven architecture is not a powerfully good thing, because it really is. When you approach it the right way, with the right mindset, uh, for the right reason, and you use it in the right way. An event-driven architecture is an architecture in which software components are very loosely coupled. Extremely loosely coupled, in fact. Even to the point of being completely decoupled. The event-driven application is kicked into motion when it receives a message. Any kind of message, really. It could be a login, or a request for information, or ordering a product or service, or a user's change in status, or a machine on the factory floor reporting a temperature. An event is just some sort of electronic message that's broadcast to authorized consumers. Event-driven applications do something with event messages they receive, perhaps even with event messages they receive, frequently broadcasting their own event messages. So what we have in a true event-based architecture is applications receiving event messages, unaware of why those events were generated, or even what applications, or things for that matter, might have generated the events. Then doing something triggered by the event, probably some kind of processing logic, and then maybe generating an event of their own, unaware of what the event consumers might do with the event. The result is an incredibly decoupled architecture that has the potential for massive scalability and resilience. And that's a great thing. And I think that's probably the reason why there are such high hopes for the event-driven architecture paradigm. But I don't want you to think that event-driven architecture is an easy button, because that isn't the case at all. That said, event-driven architectures really are elegant. They are truly a thing of beauty. It's important, however, to remember that it's not always the elegant solution or even the best solution on paper that wins out in the end. Take networking architectures, for example. Starting in the 1970s, two competing networking standards started to emerge, Token Ring and Ethernet. By the mid-1980s, both standards and the supporting technologies had matured to the point that they were released as commercially viable products. The token ring approach is to pass a token around the network, more specifically around the subnet, and the computer, or more generally, I guess, whatever device is connected to the network, could transmit if they had the token. This token-based approach essentially eliminated network collisions. Ethernet is very different. The Ethernet approach is simply to listen for a quiet time and transmit during the quiet time. But of course, there's no guarantee that another network device isn't transmitting at exactly the same time, so collisions are unavoidable. IBM released a commercial version of Token Ring in 1985, a proprietary version they would license to any company wanting to sell products based on the Token Ring approach. Xerox, on the other hand, agreed to release Ethernet as an open standard a couple years prior to the IBM release of Token Ring and the debates raged. The efficient elegance of Token Ring was pitted against the sloppy inefficiency of Ethernet, and on paper, Token Ring was the superior approach. But Token Ring didn't win out, and today Ethernet is the standard approach for network architecture. Why? Well, it was simple economics. Because Ethernet was an open standard, there was a lot of innovation. And because there was no licensing fee for using it, it was a lot less expensive than Token Ring. Economics will trump architecture every day of the week, and that's what happened here too. Customers bought more Ethernet devices, which allowed more innovation, and the technology became even less expensive. In time, the technological improvements in Ethernet made the technological advantages of Token Ring irrelevant. 
And then Ethernet improved so much compared to the slower innovation on Token Ring that Ethernet eventually dwarfed Token Ring's performance. And today, Token Ring is relegated to the museum. Here's my point. Whenever I hear people talk about the inevitability of some technology or architectural approach, well, I guess I'm naturally skeptical. Because nothing at all is inevitable when it comes to technology or enterprise architecture. It's the particulars that matter. So let's get back to event-driven architecture. Let's talk about the particulars that matter. What is it that makes event-driven architecture special? What makes it different? We need to understand it relative to other architectural approaches. We have to understand it in the context of enterprise architecture. In an event-driven architecture, there are event producers and event consumers, and some sort of event router that gets all those events from the producers to the consumers. And again, when we say events here, what we mean is messages of some sort. An event could be something that happens, such as a device on the factory floor overheating and sending a message to report that event. Or an event could be a customer requesting information on a product or service, or maybe ordering that product or service, resulting in a message to that effect. Or an event could be someone reporting a problem, perhaps in the form of a customer return, or maybe a, an IT trouble ticket, again, resulting in a message to that effect. In an event-driven architecture, event producers are completely decoupled from event consumers. In fact, they are, well, at least they should be, totally unaware of each other. Event producers produce events without any thought as to what happens based on the event. And event consumers consume events and do something with them, often without even the slightest knowledge about what triggered the event to be produced. Event producers and consumers are connected, very loosely connected that is, by the event router, which provides a place for event producers to dump their events, that is, their event messages. And it provides a place for event consumers to find events they're interested in. I'm sure you can see how such an approach is on the extreme end of distributed system architectures with tightly coupled point-to-point -point architectures being on the other extreme. With a tightly coupled architecture, introducing a new consumer or producer requires a change to the system architecture. Now, granted, it might be a small change, but it's a change nonetheless. And usually the change isn't small. And even if the change is small, it might take some time to implement. The point is, adding a producer or a consumer to a point-to-point -point architecture is disruptive. It just is. With an event-driven architecture, on the other hand, no architecture change at all is required. None. Because event producers and event consumers aren't aware of each other. I'm sure you can see the elegance in such an architecture. So how does this work in practice? To start with, uh, we should talk about the two basic event-driven patterns. One of those patterns is PubSub, I mean publish and subscribe, and the other is event streaming. With PubSub, events are published to some sort of messaging infrastructure that supports a publish-subscribe model. Event producers register the kinds of events they publish, and event consumers subscribe to those kinds of events. Then, when an event producer publishes a specific event, any subscriber to that event is notified. Sometimes the event is pushed to the subscriber, and sometimes the subscriber is just notified. For example, a subscriber to a trouble ticketing system might be notified when a new trouble ticket has been created perhaps triggering them to go to the trouble ticketing system to get the details of the event. The PubSub approach doesn't actually require a sophisticated event router, at least not the kind required for event streaming. It can actually be implemented using a standard service bus or any general purpose messaging system. 
The pub-sub approach is a pretty good way to wade up to your knees in event-driven architectures. And it's an especially good way to start if you already have such a messaging or service bus infrastructure in place. The second approach, which many event-driven purists will assist, is the only real kind of event-driven architecture, is event streaming. In an event streaming approach, events are written to an event log. Event consumers don't subscribe to an event stream. They just read from any part of the event stream and they can join the stream at any time. Event streaming usually requires the introduction of, of an event streaming platform, something like Apache Kafka, to ingest events and maybe even do some pre-processing or transformation to the event stream. At some point in the real world, you'll likely encounter complex events. Let's say, for example, you're monitoring status messages for applications. An individual outage and failover might not signal anything other than just that. But a series of outage and failover messages in a particular data center or cloud availability zone might signal something else, something more systemic. Network outages are examples of complex events, but there are hundreds of such examples. Now that we've got a basic understanding of event-driven architectures, let's talk about why we might want to use an event-driven architecture. There are several advantages to using an event-driven architecture. The first advantage is the one we just discussed, actually, decoupling producers and consumers, allowing us to easily add event producers or event consumers. Anytime we have a situation where we're frequently adding or removing event producers or consumers, or changing the events that get produced, or changing how an event is consumed, then we've got a pretty good case for an event-driven architecture. The second advantage is load balancing and fault tolerance. Consumers and producers can go offline and come back online without the entire system going down. Let's say an event producer goes down or experiences a connection problem. That doesn't affect other producers or any of the consumers. The same goes for an outage with a consumer. And this basic characteristic, the extreme loose coupling, allows us to easily spool up consumers to meet demand or shut them down when they're not needed, saving on compute costs. The third advantage, which is closely related to load balancing, is scalability. And I'm talking about massive scalability. There seems to be no limit to the number of producers or consumers in a true event-driven architecture, especially if we're using an event streaming approach. That said, event-driven architectures are not without their downsides. One downside, and this is a big one, is that with event-driven architectures, we're limited to asynchronous processing. In fact, that's how event-driven architectures achieve their advantages, all of them. Extreme decoupling of producers and consumers, fault tolerance, and scalability. These are all possible because an event-driven architecture is fundamentally asynchronous. And asynchronous architectures don't work well when what we really need is a synchronous implementation. Let's say, for example, a customer is requesting a product in which we only have a limited number in stock. The customer would probably like to know when they'll receive the product, and they'd probably like to know that before they order it. And the seller would probably like to validate the customer's payment before they ship the product. In other words, what we need in this situation is a synchronous request response implementation. The entire transaction, both sides, can only complete if both sides of the interface agree to the transaction. A second downside of event-driven architectures is complexity. There's simply no getting around the need for an event router, and there's no getting around the fact that producers and consumers must be decoupled. That's a lot more complicated than it sounds on the surface. Now, you might think that since event producers and consumers don't need to be aware of each other, it would be very simple. But most of our software doesn't work that way. Most of our distributed systems don't work that way. They're not naturally agnostic of each other. 
and making them agnostic requires a conscious effort. The payoff for refactoring our applications to work in an event-driven architecture is potentially huge, but the investment to refactor them might be unaffordable, or it might dwarf the payoff. Another area where event-driven architectures introduce complexity is in the area of complex event processing. In fact, things could become so complex that the entire event-driven architecture resembles something of a Rube Goldberg type of machine, a whole series of chain reactions, each decoupled from the other, each operating indirectly, when a much simpler direct action might suffice. A third downside of event-driven architectures is failure masking, a direct result of the highly decoupled nature of event-driven architectures. This might seem a little counterintuitive at first. I mean, we don't want the failure of one part of the system to affect uh, other parts of the system, do we? Not usually, of course. When one part of a tightly coupled system has a problem, it's obvious that we have a problem. Painfully obvious. On the other hand, we actually know we have a problem, and we generally have a pretty good idea where to start isolating the problem. With an event-driven architecture, the problem could be masked for quite a while. And when it does present itself, it's usually intermittent and hard to replicate and a real bugger to isolate. Several years ago, I was the architect for a distributed system, which was basically an event-driven system. Yes, the event-driven architectures have been around for a while. They're really not that new, although event streaming is a relatively new development. Anyway, we had a system in which sensors were generating events, which an event correlation system picked up and tried to correlate, then generated downstream alerts based on the correlation. It was a sort of complex event processing system, and an event-driven architecture was the right kind of architecture for the system. We were using an IBM MQ series server as the event router, and once every few days, the queue backlog would explode to the point that alerts generated by the correlation system were hours old. And this happened very intermittently, and we couldn't replicate the problem. It took us weeks to figure out that a single database query in the event preprocessor was painfully slow because of the way the query was written. And every few days, we'd see an event volume in which the event arrival rate was higher than the event servicing rate, so the queues would fill up. You might be asking, why hadn't we properly sized the MQ series queue server? Well, we had. Sort of. We'd sized it based on the preprocessing time of a properly written query. As soon as we fixed that one line of SQL code, we never saw the problem again. My point is, event-driven architectures are good and beneficial, but they're not the solution to every problem. So, when should we use an event-driven architecture? And when should we use other architectures? And is there a case for a hybrid architecture? Let's dig into these questions. There are lots of different kinds of architectures. In a 2020 article, Alessio Piochetti described five different architecture patterns. Event-driven architecture is one of them. The other four are end-tiered layer architectures that allow us to more easily separate concerns, such as front-end, back-end, data persistence, and the like. Piricetti also describes a microkernel or plug-in architecture that separates core logic from detailed functions, although I think this is more of a localized software architecture for a very specific application. And Piricetti also discusses microservice architectures and the more general service-oriented architectures. So those are his five architectures. But the five architecture patterns Piricetti discusses are just one view on the different kinds of architectures. Vianney Malawarachi discusses 10 common software architecture patterns. The event bus architecture is one of the 10, which essentially describes an event-driven architecture approach. 
Malawarachi's collection of patterns covers all the patterns Piracetti describes, and several more, some of which are variations of the patterns Piracetti describes, and some of them are very different. And then there's Martin Fowler's catalog of patterns, which covers several dozen patterns. Now, I wouldn't get too wrapped up in trying to sort out an agreed-upon set of architecture patterns. I'd study them, I would try to understand them, and I would try to apply them in the most appropriate way, because there is no single answer that's best for all applications. And again, I've provided links to all these articles in the show notes. I would argue that there are essentially three basic architecture patterns. A data-driven pattern, a request-driven pattern, and an event-driven pattern. And all the other patterns are just variation of those basic three patterns. Now, I'm sure someone will provide an example that proves me wrong. And I'm not trying to pick a fight here. It's just how I see the different architecture patterns in a practical way. Because these three patterns, all of them, typically exist in all enterprises of any significance. So let's look at these three patterns and their sweet spots in the enterprise architecture. Since we started this whole discussion with event-driven architecture, let's just start with that. We've talked a lot about the event-driven pattern, but when does an event-driven architecture make the most sense? An event-driven architecture is a perfect fit for cases when producers of messages, that is, events that generate messages, and consumers of those messages aren't or don't need to be aware of each other. When the producer doesn't need to know who the consumers are and what they'll do with the event, and vice versa, the consumers don't need to know what triggered an event message or where that message is coming from. And an event-driven architecture is especially appropriate when producers and consumers come and go frequently, when the messages can fan out broadly to multiple diverse consumers, and when the interactions are largely asynchronous. However, when the problem space shifts, when synchronous interactions start to become more prevalent, when consumers need to make a request and get a response, then a request-driven architecture is generally better. In a request-driven architecture, and there are many variations on the request-driven theme, a client application makes a request of a server application and waits for a response. Now, sometimes it's easy to confuse a non-blocking request with an event-driven architecture. Let's say an application makes a request and doesn't block execution while it waits for a response. There are lots of cases where that happens. But eventually, the response does come, or maybe the request times out. Regardless, this is a request-driven architecture and not an event-driven architecture. In an event-driven architecture, there is no request, just the occurrence of an event. Okay, so could you come up with a way to make an event-driven architecture work for a request-driven problem? Well, of course. But the more the problem space is dominated by a need for request-driven interactions, the better a request-driven architecture will work. And what if the problem space is dominated by persistent data, where changes to persistent data, in other words, some sort of data store, is the trigger to do something? Maybe we have a distributed database, perhaps for localized performance, replicas, if you will. Or maybe we have data that are related, but not necessarily replicas. This occurs a lot in manufacturing companies, especially complex manufacturing, where accurate product and inventory baselines are critical. Using an event-driven architecture could be a real nightmare and a request-driven architecture doesn't work much better. That's because the real trigger is a change in the data. Using an event-driven or a request-driven architecture requires a lot of complex processing to maintain data integrity and make it perform well. Data-driven architectures, on the other hand, excel in this problem space. I've personally experienced the pain of using an event-driven architecture to address what was fundamentally a data-driven problem. We were trying to keep track of changes to aircraft configurations. 
changes that happen as part of fleet maintenance. And we were using maintenance events as the trigger. At first, this seemed like a natural choice since it is the maintenance events that trigger the changes. But trying to keep the product configuration straight introduced a lot of complexity into event processing, a hell of a lot, to the point that we were continually chasing the product configuration. We were always just a little off. We did eventually get our hands around the problem and make the software work, but it took a lot of time and effort. In hindsight, a data-driven architecture would have been a much better choice. Look, my point is, there's no perfect architecture, just architectures that are well-suited to the problem at hand, good fits for the problem space, and other architectures that are not so good for the particular problem. I want to wrap up this whole discussion by bringing it up to the enterprise level, because I'm an enterprise architect, and this is, after all, an enterprise architecture podcast. A lot of what we've been talking about is really software architecture, or maybe system architecture if the system is fundamentally a software system, and these are distributed systems to be sure. But unless you write all the software for your enterprise, it's a bit of an academic discussion. You're constrained by the software you use in the enterprise, the software some other enterprise probably developed, whether that's an open source application or one you purchase a license for or one you pay a subscription for. Maybe those applications are based on an event-driven model, or maybe they're based on a request-driven model, or maybe they're based on a data-driven model. Sorry to tell you, but you don't get to choose. Now, there are cases when your entire enterprise could be an event-driven enterprise. If you're building an enterprise from scratch, and if it's the kind of enterprise that is event-driven at its core. But for most of us, that's not going to be the case. If your enterprise is even a fraction as big as mine, you'll undoubtedly be dealing with all three kinds of architectures. And you certainly don't want to try and do a wholesale replacement of your enterprise architecture with an event-driven architecture. Perhaps because you've heard that an event-driven architecture is some sort of panacea. It's not. So stop worrying about whether you should be implementing an event-driven architecture or a request-driven architecture or a data-driven architecture. If you aren't writing your own software, and I mean all of it, and with a few rare exceptions you probably aren't, then you're probably going to be dealing with all three basic architecture patterns. So in the words of my good friend Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about event-driven architecture. So get out there and have yourself a good day and open up that box of problems and deal with them because people are people and you never know what you're going to get. (laughs) 